This episode of Interphase is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for the best audiobooks, including unabridged readings of the latest novels from the incredible family of Star Trek authors. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help this show and the network at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. TFM Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Interphase, Trek FM's new Star Trek Universe podcast dedicated to all the new content being released, as well as the 50-plus years of adventures that have made the franchise what it is today and are the reason we love it so much. I'm C. Brian Jones, or Chris, and I'm joined today by my friend Michael Peffer to talk about the original series. Now, not only is Michael my friend, but he's also my colleague. As those of you who have listened to the network for many years know, my day job is in publishing. I'm a writer and an editor of magazines. Michael's a designer, and we've been working together for years on a couple of publications. And uh, I've been nagging Michael for a long time to get on mic with me because we talk about Star Trek at the office. And uh, finally, he's here. So, Michael, welcome. It's great to be here, Chris. Glad you're here. So uh, these conversations that we often have about Star Trek, they're interesting because you're a new Star Trek viewer. And of course, I'm a longtime viewer. And I always find them interesting. And so I thought, you know, this is something a little bit different that we can do on the podcast that I think others will find interesting. So, Michael, you're American, like me. You've lived in Japan for a long time. How long have you been over here? I've been here eight years now, almost exactly. Eight years. Yeah, I came here in 2012. And you grew up in uh, New Jersey, right? That's right. So I've been in Japan for eight years now. I grew up in New Jersey and I moved to New York. I lived there exactly eight years as well, just as long. And uh, I I basically settled here in Japan and I'll be living here for an indefinite period of time, especially now with uh, the situation going on in the world. Yeah, right. Don't have much choice right now. So growing up in the U.S., all those years, you never really watched Star Trek. How did you manage to avoid Star Trek all that time? Well, it started when I was younger. I have siblings, and we were all into Star Wars early on. And I grew up in the uh, 80s, 90s. And at that time, there was this idea that there that you have to be on either Team Star Wars or Team Star Trek. You have to choose between one or the other. And I was a Star Wars fan. And every time I... Had, I saw anything about Star Trek on TV, it just didn't appeal to me. And, and I'll, I'll explain why. I guess as a kid, my first introduction to Star Trek was seeing the movie previews and it was uh, seeing Next Generation bits and pieces on TV. And at that time, seeing an older William Shatner and an older cast of the Star Trek series in the movies was not appealing to a young 12-year-old. And coming home from school and seeing something so serious, something such as a, a meeting 
of uh, Captain Picard and <laughs> William Riker and right. the Klingons and talk of politics. Yeah, exactly. Staff meeting. Everybody, let's have a staff meeting. Jordi and Data have a PowerPoint for you to watch. Yeah, I felt like I was like um, I felt like I was at some. I was still at school. The teachers are having a meeting or some. uh, Interesting. That's interesting. It it just, well, I couldn't get away from, I just wanted to go outside and play or I wanted to watch cartoons. I wanted, I wasn't interested in Star Trek at the time as a young kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I I didn't have the best impression of it at that time. I didn't give it a chance to be honest. Right. How old were you at that time? Uh, When Next Generation was on, I was around middle school. I was about 12 years old, 14, something like that. I don't remember exactly. So so an Enterprise D staff meeting, yeah, was maybe not the most exciting thing for you, right? Exactly, yeah. So I just never caught on. I didn't follow it beyond that either. So I didn't really know what the difference was between each series. And so I just kind of lost track. It it wasn't until the J.J. Abrams movies that I really took note again. And oh, oh, when I got older, too, I've, I've made many friends who have been into Star Trek. And mm-hmm. they, they would say how great it is. And I, I started to wonder, what's so great about it? And I, I also I remember asking one friend, so what, what series should I start with if I'm going to start with any series? And he debated. He's like, well, maybe the original series. But actually, Next Generation is a pretty good starting point. So I, I almost started with Next Generation. But that was years ago, and eventually I ended up moving to Japan, and I got bit too busy at the time. So I think just like many people now, we're noticing that Star Trek is available on Netflix so mm-hmm. that people can now watch it just casually, whether you're into it or not. It's all available there. And once you start, you can just very easily get hooked. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So you've decided to start watching Star Trek finally, and you started last year, right? In 2019, if I remember correctly. That's correct. It feels like quite a while ago. Now I'm actually the next generation now. <laughs> and it was funny. You would tell me, you're like, last night I watched this episode. And then I would start to mention something and you would say, no, don't, don't tell me anything. I don't want to know any spoilers. Don't tell me anything that's coming up. <laughs> yeah. And you decided to start with the original series. Now, why did you choose to start there given... As you just said a moment ago, maybe the next generation is an easier entry point for many people. Well, I did see bits and I did actually see the J.J. Abrams movies. And so mm-hmm. seeing that, it was surprising at the time to see Kirk, a young Kirk. And he was very adventurous and, you know, ready to fight. And I was like, that's not Kirk, is it? Because I, I know the Kirk from the from the 1990s Star Trek movies. Uh, he was nothing like that. So I was like, that doesn't, mm. that seems out of character. That's interesting what J.J. Abrams did with that character. I, I, I thought he completely changed the character. <laughs> so, and then, so I, I got interested at that time and it's like, what is this Spock? And, you know, I, I've always heard of Spock, but I didn't really know much about him. And so I was like, yeah, I should definitely watch this. What am I doing? So I went back, I went, I went on to Netflix. It's all available there. And I started with the first episode. And to my surprise, there was no Kirk. And I was like, "What's going on here?" Oh, right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah it was. So you was, started with the cage, the which originally didn't air. No one saw that until into the eighties. But yeah, there was no Kirk. Yeah, so that, that was kind of a, an error on my part. I didn't realize that that was uh, tr- it was the pilot episode. It's the original pilot. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's not really an error on your part because you, as a new fan, you would have no way of knowing the history of 
how the show was pitched to the network and that that was rejected and didn't come out until later on videotape. Right. So, yeah, interesting. I soon caught on. And then uh, once I watched that, which I thought was actually quite, quite well done, actually. So after I watched the pilot episode, I started with um, the first episode with Kirk, which was, what was it, The Man Trap. And I was surprised because I think, um, I don't remember if it was that episode. Early on, Kirk, that there was one scene in particular, Kirk was uh, about to head outdoors into a dangerous situation, risking his life. And he was warned against doing it. And he just basically says, I don't give a damn. I got to get out there. I was like, wow, that, that's 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 pretty cool. <laughs> that's not what I expected. Yeah. He's a much more macho guy. Uh-huh, right. And uh, it was more of an adventure, too, at times. Right, yeah. To, to get it on television at the time, Gene Roddenberry pitched it as a wagon train to the stars. It was like a, a science fiction take on Westerns, which were popular at the time, because the very cerebral story that you saw in The Cage, the episode that didn't have Kirk, kind of went over the heads of some of the executives. And uh, maybe even if they got it, they felt like viewers wouldn't be interested in this. We need that adventure. So you have that shift in tone. One question I had was, who is this targeting? I, I understood it was maybe young boys at the time. And to be honest, I didn't even know. I still to this time, I don't really know exactly when it aired, what time of day. Well, I can't speak, obviously, for Gene Roddenberry and who he saw as the target. Uh, I've always felt like the target was maybe different depending on who was involved in the process of producing and airing the show. Clearly, the stories that Gene Roddenberry is telling on the show, I think, are aimed at adults tackling Mm. social issues. It's a much more cerebral show than something like Lost in Space, which was popular you know, prior to that. Right, I see. I think that because of the adventure nature that you mentioned a moment ago, and the fact that it was science fiction, uh, maybe network executives and some others probably saw it as something aimed more at a younger audience or more at kids. But at the same time, it premiered on a Thursday in an 8.30 p.m. time slot. And I think that it may have varied a little bit depending on the regional market. I'd have to double check that with someone even more knowledgeable, like my friend Larry Nemechek, who would would know for sure. But uh, it it aired at night, and when you went into the third season, Star Trek fans know very well. I'm not sure if you're aware of the fact that the show was almost canceled after the second season, and fans did a write-in right. campaign letter campaign to the network, and they got it renewed for a third season. But NBC moved it to Friday night at 10 p.m. for that third season, which made it very difficult for younger kids to watch because obviously their parents want them to go to bed. Right. So it, it is an interesting question about like who was the target audience and was the failure of the series, because it really was considered a failure on television at the time and it mm. became a success later in syndication. Was that due in part to maybe a miscommunication or a, a lack of agreement on who the audience is, what the tone of the show should be, and what would be the best time slot for it to air in? Yeah, so, right. It's a good point. Yeah, I wonder that. I actually wondered that as I went along and watched the whole series, and I noticed that there were some elements that were very unbelievable and almost silly, and. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a, a young kid at the time would love that 
some of this stuff. At the same time, some of the other stuff was very much targeting a more mature audience, someone who would understand things such as war, social issues of the time, which a young kid would Mm -hmm. never get. It would just go way over their head. Yeah, they wouldn't really be thinking about it, right? Yeah, and then you have stuff such as like Kirk tearing his shirt and suddenly like showing his bare (laughs) chest. And that was definitely targeting uh, mothers, you know, or I don't don't know, maybe young girls at the time. (laughs) So so I I was just wondering the whole time, uh, who who is this? Who are they trying to appeal to? Uh, Yeah. And at what time slot would it air that type of thing? I didn't quite get all that. But it's interesting because, yeah, well, Kirk tearing his shirt is quite famous. And uh, our friend Dayton Ward, one of the Star Trek authors, will often write into his novels a, a moment where Kirk rips his shirt, you know, in in the book itself. Uh, So it's quite well known. But that's clearly one of those sex appeal moments in 60s television. Yet, the character that women, I think, most connected with and thought was the sexiest was not Kirk, but was Spock. Oh, that would make sense. By season three, I think Spock was the one seducing Romulan women. Or other alien creatures, I don't remember. (laughs) Exactly. Not only the uh, unnamed Romulan commander in the Enterprise incident, but then you also get Droxine in the Cloudminders near the end of the season, where Spock is telling her, well, you know, that whole Ponfar thing where we have to have sex every seven years or we die doesn't really have to be seven years, you know, if you're interested. <laughs> Which is completely out of character, actually. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I guess that had to do with their target at the time. They were realizing Spock was catching on with, with the women. <laughs> well, by that point, they, they very much knew that Spock was the, the, the sexy character yeah. for the viewers. Which is interesting because when we talk about, as we did a moment ago, what say, Gene Roddenberry saw as what would appeal to viewers who are more intellectual, uh, respecting... This is how I see it, is I think Gene Roddenberry had a lot more respect for viewers and understood that people are intelligent, and you can tell them a story that has an important message, and you you can wrap it in an adventure if you want, but you can put something out there and people will think about it. And you don't need to dumb down your content for an audience, as so many studio executives of the time thought was necessary. And the fact that the viewers latched on to Spock as the sexy character reflects that, I think, because he's the more intellectual one, he's the logical one, and yet that's what they were finding more appealing. Yes, Spock was a character that they really did a good job of developing over time. You realize Spock has other powers, the mind meld, for example. Um, his father, Sarek, shows up. That gives him a, a much... You start to want, you start to understand his background a bit more, his his mother as well. Yeah. And that starts to make him a, even a more... The most three-dimensional character, I'd say, on the show. And there, I think that's a good reason why fans would really like his character. And then when he does things mm-hmm. such as... Uh, there was one episode he was suddenly swinging in a, in a tree. He was swinging in a tree because he oh, had, yeah. he was exposed to some uh, drug from from a, a plant. And uh, 
yeah, those yeah, type of like syndrome, out of, yeah. yeah, those type of out of a character moments too are really fun to watch. So I like what they did with with that character. I think uh, the character Spock. I think there's a reason why, even to this day, everybody, basically everybody in the world, probably knows the character of Spock. Yeah, definitely one of the best known characters in television film ever, right? Yeah. Well, while we're talking about characters, so we've talked about Kirk a good bit. We've talked about Spock here. What did you think about Bones, McCoy? Bones? Well, I, I like that they had kind of pitted him against Spock at times. He was kind of, he was the more emotional guy. He would, he would But he wasn't macho like Kirk. That, that, he was a good contrast to the other characters. And, and he was also, mm-hmm. he was fun too, because he would throw in little comments that, that were unexpected. I also like that he was a do- the fact that he is a doctor and that he was needed for a different purpose. Th- there's elements to his character that I guess over the time become quite interesting. Yeah, he is a lot more emotional. I started to say he's a lot more emotional than Kirk. Kirk is also emotional, but but McCoy, he's emotional in a different way. He's a lot more no nonsense and that plays well against Spock and his logic. So the two of them uh, being written against one another provides a good contrast. Uh, but you can tell that they do care about each other. Yeah. But they argue a lot. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that McCoy is more cynical, I guess. He's he's always looking at things from a different perspective. Maybe in some cases, mm-hmm. the, the viewer may even think in that way or something. It's almost like the mm-hmm. the voice of the viewer and at times, like. Or he'll add some type of comedic element just by seeing his reaction. Yeah. He, has, he has a very expressive face. DeForest Kelly does a great job of playing that part. And the three of them together. So that's the big thing about the original series, the triumvirate, the Kirk, Spock, McCoy. You have them together playing off of each other. And then the rest of the crew is in the background to that. Uh, and part of that is because of the structure of a television show and the stars and the storytelling of the time. But how did you feel about the dynamic of these three characters together as sort of a family, like brothers? Yeah, I like when uh, later on in the, in the series, in season three, Kirk becomes trapped in another dimension. And they think that he's dead, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So both Spock and McCoy have a look at his uh, message to them on how to carry on without him. I even got choked up a bit at that time. It's embarrassing to say. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, it was because it was later on in the series too, and I was like, I was real, I was realizing this kind of the tie between the three of them. Whereas early on, you don't, to be honest, you don't quite get that. They feel kind of like very separate. I think over the course of the series, they did a good job of sort of building that bond between the three characters. That's a good observation. Yeah. Before we leave the topic of characters, let's touch on the others. So we have Uhura, we have. Chekhov, who was added later, right. we have Sulu, so we and we have Scotty, of course. What are your thoughts on how they were used in the series, and and also we take it for granted today, obviously having a Russian on the bridge, right? Uh, of course, today with oh, as global right. as our society is, yeah, you know that seems quite normal. But at the yeah. time, I mean, that was a huge deal having a Russian on the bridge, oh, the Cold that makes War. Sense. Uh, having Uhura as a black woman, not yeah. only do we have a black officer on the bridge, but we have a woman on the bridge. Right. Again, something we would completely take for granted today. Yeah. 
But at the time, that was actually quite progressive. Uh, and that's a point that I think a lot of new viewers today overlook because you just expect it now. And people don't realize that it was a big deal at the time. Yeah, actually, I did overlook it. I, and one of the reasons I thought they added Chekhov in the second season was to push Scotty to the engine room. Maybe they thought he was more suited in the engine room. Oh, that's a good point. I actually, I didn't yeah. think it well, was he related is the engineer. to engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that could be okay. a reason. But the fact that Chekhov was Russian, that they selected someone who was Russian. Yeah. Now that I hear that, it's very interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, today we're so disconnected from the Cold War. And uh, of course, the relationship between the US and Russia is is very bad these days. Mm. Um, it's kind of always remained bad. Uh, one thing I don't know how much listeners know about me, despite the fact I've been podcasting on here for 10 years, is that I actually have close ties to Russia in my background because I went to music school in the Soviet Union. And mm. I have a degree in Russian language from university and studied literature and political system and all that as part of my degree program. Mm. Uh, so I, I'm pretty close to the the topic of the relationship, uh, and and I lived there twice as well. And what I know from that is that the people are fine. It's the governments that have the problem. Mm. Uh, if you're one on one with each other, you know the the people on both sides are people. You know right. they're humans and yeah. and get along fine and you know can have good relationships. But at the time of the Cold War. And the space race is another thing that uh, plays into this. Uh, in the years since then, of course, the Russian Space Agency and NASA have worked very closely together for decades now on projects right. and continue to do so even through the bad relations that the governments have, hmm. which shows how science is something separate from politics. Yeah. But at the end of the 1960s, Things were a little bit different. So yeah, having Chekhov on the bridge was making a statement that we can cooperate. That's a very interesting observation about Chekhov uh, in terms of writing, of being able to push Scotty more towards engineering, uh, even though he was the engineer, but he did have other roles. I hadn't really thought about that myself. That's interesting. Uh, when I do my next rewatch, I'm going to really pay attention to that dynamic. I, I was actually disappointed when Chekhov came on as a, another character because I felt like they hadn't developed Sulu enough. Whereas Sulu, I felt was kind of right. catching on. He was a very he was a great uh, additional character to the cast, and I'm sure he was he's much beloved these days. I'm sure people at that time also liked him a lot too. And I just wanted to see a bit more of his character develop from the very start when the series had begun. I knew I understood Kirk, Spock were the main characters. I started to understand McCoy was a main character. I actually didn't get that right away, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. And then I thought of Sulu almost equal to them and Uhara. I, I wanted to see more of them developed. Mm -hmm. And so when Chekhov came on, I felt like it was too soon almost like to, to introduce one more character. Mm -hmm. And he started to take the spot on the away team where maybe Sulu would have been or maybe and Uhara. Mm -hmm. So I was almost disappointed when he first came on. Well, there's a, there's an interesting story behind the introduction of Chekhov to the show as well. And uh, you know, heading into the second season, the uh, there's the Russian thing that I already talked about. Uh, 
that's important in terms of the idea of cooperation between the U.S. and right. the Soviet Union and how society, uh, how human society would come together in the future. And we wouldn't have this nation-state conflict. Uh, there's another thing, though, that also people today wouldn't think anything about. But you're probably aware there was a very popular band at the time called the Monkees. Right. And we talked about sex appeal with Kirk and ripping his shirt. And who's the target audience of Star Trek? Yeah. The introduction of Walter Koenig as Chekhov is said to be done in part because of the popularity of the monkeys and their lead singer Davy Jones. <laughs> and if you look at if you look at Chekhov's hairstyle, yeah, you'll notice that it's the same style as the monkeys. And so it is said that that was also a bit of an attempt to appeal to teenage girls. <laughs> and that was one reason for the addition on the show. I didn't get that part. <laughs> I would have never no, thought. No, you wouldn't in, today, in right? Days, I mean, you yeah. would have no idea today. Yeah. <laughs> now yeah, that you say exactly. it, though, yeah. you did look a bit like Davy yeah. Jones. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Except with a Russian accent. Well, with a Russian accent, which mysteriously pronounces w, you know, nuclear wessel, even though <laughs> there is no w sound in the Russian language. <laughs> So, no, no actual Russian speaking English would pronounce V's as W's because there is a V sound in Russian. There is no W sound. Nevertheless, that's how he chose to do it. And, and it works fine for the character. But then you get to the J.J. Abrams movies. And then you've got the late Anton Yelchin, who actually is Russian doing the same thing to carry forward the continuity oh. of the accent that was created in the original series. At least they cast so the Russian at that, at that time. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, how do you feel about Uhura's role on the show? She was a strong woman. The fact that she was a woman on the bridge, I kind of get that, a black woman in particular. I get that that was uh, in some way maybe groundbreaking, but definitely uh, important. To, for that representation. Well, to have her be there and to have such an important role as the communications officer, for her to be uh, treated with respect by the captain, to be treated as an equal with everyone else on the crew, was a very important moment in television. You, you, a lot of the other women that you see on the original series will come in as yeomans, you know, like carrying pads or they even have, this is funny in the original series, they even have uh, women come in and deliver drinks to the captain, the crew in little paper cups. Oh, right. Which is very much <laughs> like a 1960s thing, which when we look at it today, we think, "My, why would you do that? Right. Of course, for you and me living in Japan, sadly, even today in 2020, if you go to a meeting somewhere, you're still going to have Japanese woman come in and pour tea for everyone in the meeting room. That's right. And that's her job. You know, she's a secretary. So uh, in American society, there has been quite a lot of progress made. In other societies like ours, there has been progress made. I don't want to say there hasn't been progress, but you still see things that you feel shouldn't be happening right, in the 21st century, but yet they are. So... This is an example with Uhura of Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry trying to really push forward the idea that women 
should have the same opportunities and should be treated in the same way as a member of the crew as anyone else. And that's important. And you do see that with other characters on the original series too, like with Nurse Chapel, for example. It's one of those disconnects that I do see creatively that when I asked you at the beginning, like, what was it like? Why did you choose to start with the original series? And what are your impressions of it like watching it today, something made so long ago? Those types of elements sometimes are obstacles that modern viewers have trouble with. Yeah, looking at it from today's perspective, I don't, I can see historically, it would be important to have a black woman on the bridge. If it was today, I wouldn't say that that's something so incredible. If anything, I might say, uh, why is she the only one wearing a skirt? Whereas uh, nowadays in Star Trek, all the, many, as far as I know, many of the women, maybe all the women wear pants, just like the rest of the crew. Uh, so in terms of that sort of stereotype or like what, what a woman should do, what a woman should wear, I think there's been more progress made. Whereas, uh, I mean, yeah, if she, if she wants to serve a drink or she could wear what she wants, but at the same time for them to intentionally cast it that way. And uh, include mm-hmm. that in the in the direction or the script. That was quite not surprising, but it was something that I see from a di- different perspective nowadays. Yeah, watching it today, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Michael, you mentioned that today uh, it wouldn't seem unusual at all to have a black woman on the bridge. And in fact, you know, listeners should be aware that. You're watching Star Trek for the very first time. So you've watched the original series, the movies, and you're in the next generation right now. So you're not aware of the newer series and the fact that the lead character of one of the newer Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, Michael Burnham, is a black woman. Hmm. And she is the main character. In fact, the show revolves entirely around her. And uh, beyond Michael Burnham, the show itself does an amazing job of of casting great diversity, the kind of diversity that you would expect in Starfleet of the time period that the original series is set in. Uh, that, that series discovery takes place about 10 years before the series that we're talking about right now, before Kirk and Spock. I see. So it's a great way of contrasting the vision of where we are today and where we were in the 1960s and how people saw the future, because you're dealing with two series that are set only 10 years apart. And yet some of the things that we're talking about right now have been greatly adjusted creatively in the the writing and the creation of Discovery. And it really reflects kind of the progression of society, which is something that Star Trek was pushing us towards in the 60s. So just a note there. Uh, and again, I want to remind everyone that uh, you are a first-time Star Trek viewer. And so that's that's what's interesting, because we're seeing this through like fresh eyes, which is not so common these days. Now, Michael, another thing that I think can be an obstacle for younger viewers or new viewers when they go back and watch the original series for the first time, and a reason why some people say, I just can't really watch this, is the technology and the science. Because you have people in the 1960s imagining what, how technology will progress and how devices will work and what they will look like in the future. And also a lot of science that we know today was something that we 
didn't know then. And, you know, so much of our knowledge of the universe comes from the 80s forward and the 90s. Some of it's even just within the last 10 years, we know things that we see in these stories that they had no clue about. So talk to me a bit about your impressions of technology and science in the original series. Yeah, I'm sure some listeners will have the same sort of reaction, whether they're seeing Star Trek, the original series for the first time or not. But much of the technology, it's uh, it's based on the idea of uh, maybe supercomputers from that era. And oftentimes when Kirk or anyone is communicating with a, a machine or a robot, he's able to use his logic to confuse it to the point where suddenly it malfunctions or explodes. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And seeing it uh, for the first time, uh, maybe many people are just familiar with this point already, but seeing it for the first time, I just thought it was the most ridiculous thing uh, to, to see a computer talking to a computer and to yeah. use your own logic, a human's logic, especially a, a computer from uh, another planet, another galaxy altogether, and using your own human logic to confuse that to the point where it malfunctions. I just thought that was just hilarious. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's another famous Kirk thing, you know, talking the computer to death <laughs> right. to blow up. Oh, what did you think about things like the uh, tricorders, you know, the devices they carry around to scan things or the 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 tablets that they use or the the control panels and the buttons and and the 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 cards they stick in the slots. Yeah. It was interesting because some of it was I felt was ahead of its time in a way. Maybe we haven't even got it in there yet in terms of like a tricorder or some other uh, uh mm-hmm. med- in terms of medicine, in terms of uh some of the even the idea of talking to computers, I think nowadays we have Siri, we take it for granted. It's just the way they thought it would happen, uh, the way that they went ahead mm-hmm. with like many things were very manual. There was uh, turning knobs or pushing big red uh, yeah. multicolored buttons. I think that was more entertainment for me than anything. But the, the idea behind lots of the technology was actually well ahead of its time, I suppose. What about in terms of science? Did anything stand out to you that felt particularly interesting that that's how they thought things would be and yet today we know it to be different? Yeah, I thought when when it comes to, for example, I think there's like a clone version of Kirk that was a robot on one episode. <laughs> on the uh, yeah, it spins yeah. around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That, I, yeah, it, well... Maybe they just had this thing that spun and they decided to use it for this prop or something. <laughs> that's pr- that is probably what happened, Michael. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the sort of impression I get from the original series is that they kind of just, they made do with what they had, sort of. So Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I respect that. I thought it was, uh, even lots of the machinery, oftentimes, for example, a big fancy supercomputer, I believe that it was the same one. And maybe not. That was a sort of variation on every episode. Uh, no yeah. matter the same color scheme, the same type of uh, same look on each episode. And then uh, with all this technology, uh, they were still able to just like open up a big vent and climb through. Or that was you know there was always something, some way around it that was that was not so realistic. Maybe that maybe that was going back to that uh, younger target, right? Yeah, having the adventure, right? Yeah. Yeah, they did make do with what they had. You know, their budget was always low, especially the third season. The budget gets very low. 
And you can tell that a lot of stories are driven by what props are available from other productions that we can use or what can we shoot on this backlot? Because, you know, the, the studio has backlots for different themes like a Western or that type of thing. And well, what can we do with this backlot? Okay, why don't we have a... They go to an old West planet or they go to a gangster planet. We can do that. And I always love the Squire of Gothos with Trelane where they go down to the planet He's the only person on the planet. They go into his house and he's got all these props from other episodes or other TV shows. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, <laughs> let's just open the prop room and just drag everything in here <laughs> and build a story around it. And yet you still get a good story yeah. that it's still a good science fiction story. It still has a message. And so they were very creative at doing a lot with very little. That was one case that that type of thing actually worked out, finding creative ways to sort of repurpose some objects or a set or actually, I guess the whole point was to save mm -hmm. money, save budget. But at the same time, yeah. I felt like oftentimes when they were suddenly had um, something that was Earth from Earth, it kind of, it took you out oh, of yeah. this the series the oftentimes. Yeah, well, uh, okay. the same Earth too. There, there was one where it was like, it was it was the exact same planet, the exact same look as Earth, and then they go to like the yeah, Midwest or something. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't. Yeah. I still don't remember why they did that. Like they could have still made it an alien planet, no? Yeah, I, I, I can't really give you an answer on that. Whether it's the, the idea that there's just a parallel Earth. It right. looks exactly the same, you know, because there is yeah. the scientific theory that if you were to go far enough through the universe, everything will duplicate itself because yeah. there are there is a finite number of possible combinations, but you'd right. have to go much further than the Enterprise did for that. To quantum happen. physics, so, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess my, my point was every time that they reuse these props, or they suddenly, for example, there's there's one set in uh, Chicago, or there's a planet that yeah that like, was in, inspired, influenced by. The laws of Chicago and gangs. Yeah. A piece of the action, yeah, because the book had been left behind. Yeah. Right? And so they modeled their society on the book. Yeah, yeah laws or lack thereof laws. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, every time they go back to using something from Chicago or something from ancient Greece, Rome, I felt like it, it took me out of the story. And I almost can relate it to like, for example, if, if you're going on a vacation and you go to some exotic location. Versus like a staycation. You're always reminded of home. Okay. Yeah. So I, I felt like uh, seeing something from Chicago, seeing something from Rome or Greece, I felt like it took me completely out of the story, that narrative of space exploration. Uh, okay. That's an interesting point because here's a question. Is Star Trek about space exploration or is it about social exploration mm. of human culture? And I would say it's a bit of both. That's my personal view. Science fiction as a genre, for me, is more about exploring our own society than it is about exploring space. Mm -hmm. I think that's the greatest strength of the genre. And the reason is that you can talk about issues that you can't normally talk about because people get too upset and they're too divisive and so you can't have any dialogue. It's like 
the world we're living in today where everything is just so black and white and no one will listen to anybody. But through science fiction, by taking the issue and setting it on a different planet in a different society with different parameters that you are detached from, then you can actually have a dialogue about it and maybe come up with ideas on how to resolve it, or you can at least talk about the risks and what could happen if we don't. So in terms of Star Trek, there's this idea that we're boldly going where no one has gone before. And that's exploring new planets week after week. And that's one of the appeals of Star Trek. At the same time, the stories themselves talk about our own real-world issues. Hmm. So with what you're describing, it's interesting that from a storytelling point of view, we can talk about, uh, let's say, who mourns for Adonais, which is the one where they use elements from ancient Greek society and mythology. Right. And sort of the point of that is, do humans still believe in gods? And should gods have control over our lives? Or should we have control? Should we shun religion? Should we shun mythology? That's one of the elements of that episode. So let me ask you a question. As a viewer, you would prefer that that question be explored through a story that has no connection to Earth whatsoever, instead of being really literal and taking something familiar as they did. Yeah, I think that's my point, is that it was almost too literal in the way that they did it on the original series, Mm -hmm. which is a big turnoff for me at times, Um, even when when they did use something like the, uh, the Klingons supplying weapons to one side and then... Kirk deciding to supply weapons to the other side or uh, a native mm-hmm. Native American type culture. Uh, I felt like it, mm-hmm. whether it was something from space or and a completely different alien creature or something very familiar, I felt like it was almost too literal at times. But maybe it had to be because I think once they developed Star Trek a bit more, I feel like they had more flexibility, I'm sure, later on to do things and not have to re-explain that this has to do with this culture, that culture, even though I don't want to get into next generation too much. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Once they established more cultures, uh, because of course we visit different planets, just like one-off visits, but yeah. we do over time build up more alien cultures that are constant. Right. Yeah, that's true. And that makes it a bit easier to talk about topics where you're putting a familiar framework for the viewer because they know who the Klingons are, the Romulans or the Vulcans or... Andorians and such, and you can provide a more familiar framework without having to fall back on Earth cultures as they do. Yeah. Although I think there are also budgetary reasons for why they have a Native American culture, yeah. or sure. obviously the Chicago that that <laughs> type of thing is very much a hey, let's use the back lot and let's use these costumes because then we don't have to make new costumes. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And actually, when looking back now, having seen it for the first time in 2019, 2020, I wonder who were these Romulans and Klingons? I mean, I know what they are, obviously, like in terms of like their relationship to the Federation or what. But I was wondering, mm-hmm. who do they represent? Like, do, do they represent a certain culture or a fear or in terms of like, do they represent something related yeah. to communism? Or do they represent a whole load of right. different things, a whole variety of different things? Well, I I think that that's the correct answer when we look at it as a whole today. And it depends on who's looking at it because you can see different things 
in them. Originally, the the Klingons were meant to represent the Soviet Union. They're the enemy that we're in the Cold War with, facing right. off against them. Over time, I think that they were replaced by the Romulans to represent the Russians because the way that the Romulans behave is much more in line with the way that the Soviets and the Russians behave in terms of the kind of secretive society, calculating, uh, spying. That type of behavior better represents the adversarial relationship between the U.S. and the Russians, whereas the Klingons warrior race, which was redefined in the next generation by Ronald D. Moore, no longer fits that as well. I think originally the Romulans were meant to represent more of the Chinese at the time, and then that uh, changed as the stories went on, as the relationships went on, and as our society evolved. That's interesting because I thought it was opposite. I thought maybe the Romulans were similar to the Russians and the Klingons were supposed to be almost like Mongolian warriors, like something more like from Asia, Asian culture. But I really had no idea. <laughs> but do you feel that way? I, I think you're you're correct, actually, in when you look at it today. If you've if you've moved forward, like now you're in the next generation, and when you right. look at it as a whole, but if you forget what you know about the next generation Klingons, if you only look at the Klingons in the original series, and they actually yeah. don't appear that often, right? Do you still have the same feeling about them as a warrior race? I do because they fought with swords. I believe it was even on the uh, original series. There's one. I think it was in season three. As yeah, even. Uh, they had to battle on board the Enterprise, and they're only given swords. There is the Day of the Dove where they're they have to use, they're only given swords, right? Yeah, that's more of a situation in that episode where they were kind of forced to have this battle, yeah. the swords, more so than the Klingons being a group that always fights with swords all the time right. at that point. However, as you know from the next generation, they they were evolved into a warrior race, which is mm-hmm. sort of a an odd cross between like a Japanese samurai culture and sort of this, I think of them anyway, is more like Norwegian, like Viking culture, like the two mixed together, hmm. but they're not really presented that way on the original series. Yeah. When I first saw the Klingons, I was surprised at how they look because I was familiar with Klingons from the 1980s, 90s, Star Treks. Yeah. And to see the Klingons in costume in the 1960s, it's just like it was a big surprise mm-hmm. when I first heard Klingons were going to appear. Yeah, I was really excited that that episode. It was later in season one, I believe. <laughs> and then I saw them. Yeah. I was just like, "Oh, that's what a Klingon looked like in the 1960s." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, of course, was a budgetary thing because yeah, that's not a criticism. They couldn't do the prosthetics and all that we got later. It was the motion picture when they first changed them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this <laughs> this is also interesting because again, you're a first-time viewer and you've made your way through the original series and you're you're almost to the end of the next generation. But nevertheless, you're probably not aware that this topic is one of the biggest debates in Star Trek fandom. Oh, is that right? For decades now, why do the Klingons have smooth foreheads in the original series? Why do they have ridges from the motion picture forward? Oh. And it is such a big debate that 
you'll find out as you go along that there is a point where in the storytelling itself, they attempt to explain this. Oh, wow. Even that though sounds a little unnecessary. It doesn't but. need to be explained, <laughs> yeah. really, because you should be able to say, okay, it was the 60s. Prosthetics have changed drastically. Like our right. ability to do prosthetics, as well as the expense of doing them, has changed yeah. drastically. And on a TV series where they're having to use props from other TV shows because they don't have any money, of course, they're not going to be able to do fancy makeup on the aliens. Right. But uh, this is a huge debate, uh, an interesting one, a fun one, sometimes a very heated one in well, the fandom. There's an episode where um, where Kirk and Spock. It's actually a very good one. It's where they go back, they travel in time, and uh, they're stopped yeah. by a police officer. Yeah, that's the city on the edge of forever. And Spock's ears are a giveaway, and his his eyes maybe I don't know his right. face, and he it's it's explained by Kirk that it's because he's. Chinese and his ears were yeah. the result of an accident with a rice picker or something. And it was like the most racist right. thing. I was yeah. like, what was that about? I know, but, right? But I don't th- I think yeah. even Spock to me, he doesn't look that much different than a regular human being. Like, yeah, he has pointy ears. He has right. a little bit different coloring. Yeah. So I think that's also like a costume. Yeah. I mean, like a makeup department thing at that time in the 60s, you know, the same thing with the Klingons. I don't think they could go all out and create a lumpy forehead or <laughs> yeah i i think it's somewhat a makeup department thing and somewhat because he was a main character there was concern about his appearance among studio executives that he can't be too alien they actually did not even like the pointed ears they thought oh, he looked right? satanic oh. and there are some promotional materials that were put out where they actually rounded off the ears because they thought it's just too much. Audiences won't possibly be able to handle oh, wow. this. So it's a bit of both uh, that went on there. And like you said, yes, I mean that when we watch Star Trek, I think it's important. I say this all the time, and I notice that a lot of younger viewers especially seem to not be able to do this. I think it's important that when we watch Star Trek from the past, that we remember the time in which it was made and we try to take into account what society was like at the time, what was considered acceptable, what was not considered acceptable. Right. Because the comments about, oh, he's Chinese and the ears are the result of an accident with a rice picker, obviously that's an extremely racist statement that we would never say today. Right. And if it were written into an episode of Star Trek Discovery or Picard, of course, people would be outraged and rightfully so, because no, you should never say that. Right. But that was written in the 1960s. And I'm sure there were people in the 1960s who also thought it was racist at the time, but probably much less so. And in American society at the time, it was something that you didn't really pay attention to. You probably didn't even think much about it. It, it was just said, and you just right. keep going on with the story, right? So that that's actually a really, really great example of how the way we view things today and the way they were viewed then were very different. And we we really should look at creative work within the context of its time, Right. And rather than beating up on it, which happens a lot in social media these days, we should try to look at the threads of how that happened, 
where we are now and how, in the case of Star Trek, the concept that Gene Roddenberry had, right. the stories that have been told over the years have gotten us from there to here and had a positive influence on society in some ways. Yeah. That's, I'm glad you brought that up just because it is a good example of an extremely insensitive moment in the original series, a show that tried to be progressive, but obviously wasn't always. No, I th- actually, I completely agree with you. I felt when I was watching it, I wasn't upset at Star Trek or any of the actors or writers or creators. If anything, I was just surprised that they could get away with that at the time. Like, oh, at that time, you could still say such a thing or you could still, you know, do such a thing. Yeah. So I was more surprised that the society at that time was so accepting. Well, and that you would even think such a thing. Yeah, think such a thing. Or, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if accepting is the word I would use. It's mm. more like indifference. Right. Exactly. The thing is, at that point in time, we also have to remember the world today is very small. And if you want to know something about another culture, it's very easy to find out because you have access to virtually unlimited information. You can talk to people from other cultures anytime you want online. But in the 1960s, if you were an American and you really wanted to know more about China, you had to really put forth some effort and study and you may not have the opportunity to actually interact with the real culture in any way. Yeah. So you really don't know. And therefore, I think there was a lot of indifference and you just accepted whatever was said, yeah. whatever was put on TV. Uh, you know, Even today, you recognize this, I'm sure, as I do, because we live in Japan. In American movies and television today, people still don't understand the difference between China, Japan, and Korea. They right. still mix it all up together like it's just some kind of lumped together Asian culture. Yeah. And that's in 2020. So, of course, in the 1960s, they're not going to have any real idea what Asian culture was like. So, Michael, let me ask you one last thing as we wrap up talking about your first impressions of the original series. We've talked about quite a few episodes as we've talked about specific themes and messages. Are there any other episodes that just stand out to you? Like, these are your favorite episodes as you watched? Yeah, my favorite episode was the very start of season three. It was the second episode in, I think. The Enterprise incident where the Romulans surround the Enterprise and the neutral zone. And and that, that just had so many almost cinematic elements. You could almost turn it into a movie. And it was it was, to me, the most complex episode it explored a lot of characters. Even new characters became a bit three-dimensional. There was a lot of twists and turns and and so, some humor as well, almost, whether intentional or not. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just felt like that was just a really complex episode. It was really well done, well-written, and by far the best Star Trek original series episode, I feel. Okay, so The Enterprise Incident is your favorite original series episode. Interesting. It's a very popular episode. Yeah, it's quite... Uh, popular with fans. I can see why. What else, uh, what other episodes really connected with you that we haven't talked about yet? The most fun episode among everything was The Trouble with Tribbles, where they introduced the Tribbles. I, I, I'm sure that's a classic yeah. episode. I'm sure many people may feel the same. Oh, definitely. I almost feel like yeah, that's if, a classic. if someone really has to give Star Trek a chance, they should watch yeah. that episode, uh, along with some of the more serious ones, of course. But it, it just shows that that they don't take themselves too seriously. And it's it's just a lot of fun. It's really cute. I think uh, men or women or 
children, all age groups can really enjoy it. And it's just a fun one altogether. Small furry animals. Maybe yeah. they don't like it there. They'll be <laughs> concerned they might get poisoned. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorites, one of the top Star Trek original series episodes, I feel, is uh, Amok Time, Spock's mating ritual. And that was yeah. the start of season two. I clearly remember that. And it was, wow, what a start. It was just, it was just yeah. taking it to another level. It was uh, seeing Kirk and Spock in what was supposed to be the fight to the death and also developing the character Spock more, as I talked about earlier. It was just, that was definitely up there among the best ones. I also really liked the episode with the Horda. Oh, the devil in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually looking at that now. I mean, at that time there was no alien movie or, uh, you know, the movie alien or there was no, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, Horror movies hadn't come such a long way. As far as I know, I, I'm not familiar with the 60s horror movies so much. But I felt like that was that was something I didn't expect from a TV show from that time. For this type of creature mm-hmm. to be in the dark and terrorizing guys. And I also felt mm-hmm. really bad for the one guy that was left. I think it was at the start of the episode. He's left alone and they're just like, oh, you'll be fine. Uh, just stay here. And he's like, are you sure? No, you won't. This, this creature's been killing all these all these guys down here. And like, yeah, yeah, just stay here. We'll, we'll be, back, uh, we'll be back in a few hours or next day or so. And then like as soon as they turn their just, back. Just hang out here. Yeah, as soon as they turn their back, suddenly the creature appears. And he's like, oh, no, oh, no. And they're like, oh, he's burned to a crisp. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. You, I mean, you, you would think, well. He's not a Starfleet officer, though, right? Isn't he one of no, the engineers? Yeah, he's like, like a miner the, or something. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, he was just a miner. If he had been an officer on the Enterprise, you would think that by now he would know not to be left alone. <laughs> <laughs> Too many people I know have died after being told to wait here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it must have been really bad because uh, most of the time when someone dies, they just get zapped and disappear. With this guy, they didn't even show it. But anyway, uh, that's a different story altogether. <laughs> it was so bad. We <laughs> anyway, cannot that... show this on 1960s television. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, I think that that was also like the first episode. I know uh, historically McCoy says, I'm a doctor, not a, I don't know what he says. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, I think. Bricklayer, you're right. Yeah. Episode, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Spock does mind meld we talked about earlier. Um, no, but there was the one with uh, Alice in Wonderland and... Oh, Shore Leave, yeah. That's a fun, very odd episode. Shore Leave, it was Alice in Wonderland, uh, Don Juan, and uh, Kirk's former rival shows up. Yeah, 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 yeah. He looked a little like Chekhov. Maybe they were introducing, uh, uh, was it the monkeys? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Sticking with the monkeys theme, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, but when I saw the Alice in Wonderland at first, I saw the rabbit, and I was just like, oh, no, this is going to be awful. Like that, that was my first, first thing, my first impression. And it was still season one, I think, at that time. And another one I really enjoyed was the immunity syndrome. It was a giant single-celled organism. And again, I think that goes back to the, like, right. developing the character of uh, Spock and McCoy uh, and also Kirk and his relationship between the, the, the two of them. And that was the middle of season two. I felt like that was a really big point in the series. Yeah, that's also a good episode. Toward, toward the very end of season three, it was toward the end of the whole series. There's the one, the Cloud Miners, which I don't think was the yeah. best episode I've ever seen. It was pretty good, though. But one thing that I stood out was they mentioned is Cloud City. And mm-hmm. going back to the whole Star Wars thing, me growing up, being into Star Wars and the, the whole rival, rivalry between Star Wars, Star Trek. 
I started to realize, yeah. like, th- while watching the original series, definitely Star Wars had, was strongly influenced by Star Trek. That's without a doubt. Just mm-hmm. the whole the whole idea. So Bespin is kind of like this. Yeah, there's a there's a Cloud City, which almost was is like a directly t- they took the word Cloud City and re- and used it again in in Star Wars. But mm-hmm. also, uh, for example, um, Spock's mind meld and his powers become mm-hmm. almost like Jedi type powers and and uh, uh, yeah, and, yeah. That's an interesting point. So I've I've seen many similarities as I've gone along, and nothing nothing that stands out so much as the Cloud Miners with Cloud City. That just seemed like too direct a mm-hmm. reference. So that that one stood out to me as well. Interesting. Yeah. Good. So my takeaway from our discussion is that you really enjoyed the original series uh, as someone in 2019, 2020, watching this TV show from the late 1960s with all of the style of the time in terms of the visuals, the acting style, the writing, the elements that seem very out of place to us socially today, but were at least normal, if not progressive at the time. Nevertheless, like you found it entertaining. Yeah, going into it, I had no preconceptions. I didn't, well, at the start, I talked a bit about how I had, I had viewed an older uh, William Shatner, you know, or uh, mm-hmm. how I had I had known some elements of Star Trek, but pretty much I went into it without any expectations. Mm-hmm. And seeing this for the first time in Technicolor, it was, <laughs> no, it was, uh, seeing this <laughs> right. for, yeah, it was, actually it was very colorful. It was, uh, felt very 1960s, um, in a way, but at the same time, it was ahead of its time. But at the same time, it was kind of like an adventure TV show that was, just very, it was great entertainment. The entertainment factor was very high. They slipped in some messages that were very powerful. They did things that were some very groundbreaking at the time. I'm sure. Seeing it from today's perspective, I felt I could see why fans would like not only like this but think of this as something that's uh, really classic, and why it would be a shame that it would be canceled after three seasons. And I also felt I, I could see Star Trek's influence today on many things. I could see how it influenced uh, other movies or TV series. I also saw how it could be uh, the start of something much bigger. Whereas at that time, maybe, I'm not sure they expected that. They had that vision, but they did a really good job of creating something that could go on for decades. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they ever expected it to end up where it is now. With uh, What do we have? We have 13 movies. We've got... I have to count the series now. We had six up until uh, Discovery started, and now we've got Discovery and Picard and Lower Decks. Wow, I've got a long way yeah. to go. <laughs> so we've got we've got nine that are airing, and then we've got uh, Prodigy, which is coming soon, and that will be ten. And then there's a Section Thirty One series, which is coming, which will be eleven. Wow. So we've got uh, a lot, a lot of content. So yes, Michael, you have a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, but but you're, but you're making very rapid progress. I have to say. Yeah, now I'm on Next Generation, and uh, maybe I'll be back at some point to discuss that. And also, uh, on my advice, you are watching DS9. You're watching them like air order. So once uh, DS9 started during The Next Generation, you're kind of going back and forth as it as we watched it originally when it came on TV, right? That's right, including the movies. The only thing I skipped over was some of the cartoons, the animated series which didn't really interest me as much. 
So I went. I jumped in. Well,、there. maybe one day they're very easy to watch. So yeah, maybe one day、sure. you'll you'll go through and watch them, and、uh, we'll get on here and talk about the animated series also. Oh, sure. I'd like that as well. <laughs> It'll be fun. Well, Michael, thank you for sharing your impressions on Mike with me and with all the listeners today.、Uh, I've again gotten those bits and pieces from you over the past year or so. As we've worked on the magazines, but it was fun to finally sit down and like have a really long discussion about Star Trek with you. So, if people want to see other things that you're doing or or say hello, where can they find you online? Oh well, if you'd like to find me online, you could find me on I suppose Instagram M J P F E F F E R. If you could follow that,、uh, M J Paffer, and、uh, yeah, go ahead and like and follow. And、uh, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed talking Star Trek with you, and this is、uh, actually I've learned a lot from all this about the the series, and I really appreciate the time. That was my pleasure. I'm so glad that you joined me, and、uh, I could share a few more bits about Star Trek, which maybe you'll carry forward with the rest of your rewatch. And you'll have to come back when you finish the Next Generation, so we can do this again and talk about TNG. Sure, look forward to it. Well, I'm glad I could finally get Michael on microphone to talk about Star Trek with me. We've been talking about doing this for quite some time, and I hope that you enjoyed hearing his thoughts as a new Star Trek viewer, going back and watching the original series for the first time in this day and age. If you would like to share your thoughts on today's show, of course, we would love to hear from you. There are many ways you can do that. Perhaps the best way is to go to Facebook and join the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group. If you're not already a member, you can find it by typing B A B E L into the search field. It should come up. If not, just type the whole name, the Babel Conference. It is a closed group, so if you're joining, you'll need to answer some questions. Please do answer those questions. There are three, and then I'll be able to let you in. We try to keep the group limited to listeners so that we can have a great discussion, and it's not just a everyday run-of-the-mill Facebook group. If you'd like to share your thoughts by email, you can also do that by going to our website and using the form at trek.fm/contact. Just choose a show, choose interphase, and that'll come to me. Again, that's trek.fm/contact, and you can find us on Twitter, where our username is trekfm. We also have an Instagram account. Michael mentioned his. Again, our username there is trekfm. That's our username everywhere, and if you'd like to find me personally, my username on Twitter and everywhere is C Brian Jones. Letter C and Brian with a Y. Twitter is my main platform, so if you want to chat with me, that's the best place to find me. In terms of podcasting, you can find me elsewhere here on the network. I do quite a few shows. I'm starting up podcasting a bit more after being off mic. For most of the time in the last few years, my main show is the Ready Room, which I do with Larry Nemechik, and I also do the Orb with Matthew Rushing, where we talk all things Deep Space Nine. And Matthew and I have just taken over once again as hosts of Literary Treks after a long break. We were the original hosts, and then Dan Gunther and Bruce Gibson took over for many years. And now Matthew and I are back there, and we just recorded a new episode, which should drop right now as I'm recording this. And we had a wonderful interview with our friend David Mack about his Kelvin timeline novel, More Beautiful Than Death. 
So check out that episode on literary treks. If you would like to keep us going here on the network, help us keep these shows coming to you, you can support the network on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you can find out how I'm currently in the process as we go through this rebranding of the network that we're doing right now. I'm in the process of rethinking our patron benefits and working on a new home for our patron perks on our website. So that'll be coming to you soon. It does take a lot of work and a lot of money to operate this network and to pay for the bandwidth and keep the shows coming. So any support you can give us is most appreciated. And one perk in particular that many of our patrons enjoy are the roundtables where you can get on mic with fellow listeners and some of our hosts and talk about Star Trek just the way Michael and I did today. That is one perk available. So please visit patreon.com slash trekfm to find out how you can help us move our way into our second decade of podcasting about Star Trek. And I would like to thank everyone who supports us there. And for all of our associate producers, thank you so much for your help. We really could not do this without you. Now, we have many more shows on the network besides Interphase and the ones that I just mentioned. If you want to find them all, just look up trek.fm in your favorite podcast app. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Stitcher, Spotify. We're pretty much everywhere you get your shows. So just search for trek.fm and find the wide range of Star Trek content that we have, as well as non-Star Trek content with the 602 Club, which is now its own wing of the network, and more shows to come, delving into our favorite topics beyond Star Trek. So thanks everyone for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'm looking forward to bringing you another episode of Interface very soon, so I hope you'll join us again next time as we explore the Star Trek universe. Star Trek.